Amen. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in Revelation chapter 19. Again, this morning, we will finish up this chapter this morning. Let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word as we acknowledge that it is holy and inerrant, the infallible Word of the true and living God. Revelation 19, and we'll begin in verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter this morning. Listen now to the Word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the, ho- on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. In that epic battle scene that's described in 1 Samuel chapter 17, before David and Goliath do mortal combats, they both exchange a series of insults with the intention of intimidating one another on the battlefield. Now, Goliath, for his part, doesn't need to say much. Uh, He does ask whether David is going to come after him as a stick, as though he were a dog, which is a good enough insult, I suppose. But with his stature and his strength and his armaments and his power, Goliath doesn't need to do too much in order to intimidate his foe. David, however, who is described as being younger and ruddy and handsome, uh, he repeats a line that Goliath has just said, although David takes it up a notch in terms of the violence of his description. Both threaten to leave the opponent's body dead on the battlefield for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the field to consume. It's David who adds the detail about beheading Goliath, and it's exactly what he does as you know the story David takes five smooth stones, he only needs one of them, and he sends it uh, hurtling towards Goliath's head like a shotgun slug, and Goliath is felled with one smooth stone of David's sling. And so David's prophecy comes true because the Philistines flee the battlefield, and presumably then the beasts of the field and the birds of the air consume Goliath's flesh, but not before David takes Goliath's sword for the sake of posterity, to commemorate his victory in this particular battle. So this is an ancient uh, way of threatening your opponent that you're going to leave his body on the field for the birds of the air to feast upon. Uh, It's a disgusting threat if you think about it for just a moment, but it's also one that bears quite a bit of significance because in the ancient world, of course, to experience a, a bodily burial is an honorable thing, and to leave a body unburied is a very, very dishonorable thing. Okay? And so this is why, for instance, in Ezekiel chapter 39, and that description of the battle of Gog and Magog, which we've talked about a little bit, but probably not as much as we could, 
and its eschatological counterpart, the Battle of Armageddon, that same threat that God's enemies, that those who are evil and wicked, those who are unbelievers, that their bodies would be left unburied in that eschatological battle of Gog and Magog, or as it's called variously, the Battle of Armageddon. We see that same line today. You're probably not surprised to notice it's there in our text today in Revelation chapter 19. So as we finish up this particular chapter, let me call your attention to just a couple of big picture context issues, and then I want to get into our our main focus for this morning. First of all, I want you to notice that this is a ironic scene in as much as this also is called the Supper of God, okay? But a a clearly grotesque and macabre um, counter-distinction to the other Supper of the Lamb, which we just saw earlier on in this chapter. Remember, the wedding feast of the Lamb is that beautiful banquet feast over which God Himself is the heavenly host, that banquet feast in which the bride of Christ is taken up into matrimonial glory with Christ, her heavenly groom. Here we have almost the same phrase, the the supper though of God, and it's ironic because the supper this time is this depiction of these birds and these beasts who are going to gobble up and consume um, the bodies of those who are felled in this Armageddon battle that's described here in this text. We're also going to see in this particular passage another description of hell, which we're not going to get into too much, though we believe it to be true. That, visit, that vivid scene of hell is going to come up again in chapter 20, so we'll have more to say about the lake of fire as we work through this passage in the, the weeks to come. Uh, but I want to draw our primary attention this morning to this language of the false prophets. Now, the false prophet, if you recall from previous weeks, is the same thing as the second beast back from Revelation chapter 13, okay? So we've heard of the dragon, we've heard of the first beast, we've heard of the second beast, and the language of the false prophet comes in three times in the book of Revelation to describe that second beast, okay? And so what I'd like to focus on here this morning, if you'll permit me, is how in the world it is possible for this second beast, this false prophet, to deceive so many people, given that his deceptive anti-ministry is so clearly prophesied throughout the book of Revelation. In other words... Uh, If it's true that this false prophet is going to have the ability and prerogative to deceive so many people, okay, here's my question. How is his deception so terribly efficient and effective given that the scriptures have told us all along that he's coming to deceive? Right? Does that make sense? So the clear, the prophecy that he's going to come and deceive many, uh, there should be then this clarion, clear warning to us that his deception is coming, and that therefore you would think that many people would take guard against this and bulwark their own hearts and their own minds against him, lest his ministry of deception avail upon you. And yet, and yet, in this text, it, it, sure, it certainly seems to be the case that he deceives very, very, very many people. Because otherwise... Who are these dead bodies which are laying strewn upon the battlefield for the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field to consume? Right? You see my question here? How is the false prophet so terribly efficient and effective in deceiving 
so many people. Okay, so I'm going to have four answers for that this morning. I'm going to draw them all right out of our text. So if you'll have your Bible open with me to Revelation chapter 19, and forgive my voice, struggling with a little bit of sickness here myself this morning. I'm going to do the best I can. But I'm looking for four answers to this question of how it is that the false prophet deceives so many people. And you might also be asking yourself, uh, am I one of those who are going to be deceived? Hopefully not. But you should at least ask yourself the question. First answer. Because of the hardness of the human heart. Because of the hardness of the human heart. Now look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Against who? Against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Well, who is he who is sitting on the horse? Well, that's a rhetorical question for those of us who were here last Sunday because we know that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is described as gloriously riding into this battle scene at his second coming here. Earlier on in chapter 19, verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one seated seated upon him is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. But notice here that all those who are fallen on the battlefield, those who are strewn like Goliath on the battlefield, they were gathered together against him, okay? They hated him. They were turned against him. Their hearts were inclined against Christ, even though he's seated upon this glorious horse, and he is holy and true in all that he does. Yet nevertheless, the hearts of those who are felled here in the scene were calloused and hardened against Christ, okay? Now, the false prophet, this this demon of deception, as it were, he works in two ways. Negatively, we might say that what he does is he shields men from seeing the truth so that they might turn and be saved. And he doesn't want that. And so part of his work here is negative in that he tries to withhold the truth so that somebody cannot see and believe in him. That's a paraphrase, very loose, of 2 Corinthians 4.3. He blinds the minds of those so that they would not see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ, right? Positively, he asserts lies and distortions to keep minds and hearts blinded in him, okay? So in the parable of the soils, for instance, one of Jesus' parables, you remember Matthew chapter 13, one of the things that the evil one does is that he comes and he snatches up the seed that is strewn upon the road or the path. Okay, so the devil works in those ways. But let me just let me just say this as clearly as I can. Remember, the false prophet's ultimate goal, the second beast's ultimate goal, as it's told in Revelation 13, is that you would redirect your heart, not from the true and living God, but rather that you would focus your worshiping attention to the beast himself, i.e. to Satan. And apparently, from all the bodies that are strewn on the field in this battle scene here of Armageddon, he's very effective in doing that. Now, even in as much as the false prophet is effective and efficient in his work, here is the sad truth, though, in this, and we have to observe this, first of all. The sad truth is that that the human heart doesn't need a lot of deception to turn it away from God because the human heart is already inclined against the true and living God. Why so? Well, because as David prayed in his prayer of confession this morning, did you notice, we are born with original sin. That's right. 
We are born already declined away from the holiness of God. And so it doesn't take much to deceive an already deceived heart. Now, one of the greatest mistakes that you can make in philosophy or in theology is to make the mistake of Aristotle. His heir is still alive today. Do you know what Aristotle's heir was? Aristotle taught against Plato that when a man is born, his heart is something like a tabula rasa. I don't know if you remember that phrase from philosophy class, if you ever took philosophy. But a tabula rasa is Latin for a blank slate. It's the idea that you're born into this world with no predispositions towards anything. You're born a blank slate. And so your life, like a slate, Aristotle says, is, it begins to be filled with when you're born with all of your experiences and all the things that you learn and all of the influences upon you. In other words, Aristotle says something to the effect that you become who you are by way of all of the influences that you accumulate during the time of your life, you see. And John Locke picked up on that. John Locke, in his empiricism, he said something very similar, that the heart is something like a white paper, he said, obviously referring to Aristotle's tabula rasa. And thus, you are who you are. You believe what you believe. Uh, you think what you think, and you, you feel what you feel because, again, of the experiences that you accumulate. Skinner picked that up in terms of psychology, and his theory is that of behaviorism, that you behave the way you behave, again, because of the influences that you experience in your life. And by the way, that's probably the foremost psychological theory today, that you can blame your behavior, listen to me carefully, you can blame your behavior on the surroundings around you. Uh, behaviorism would suggest that you act bad because you have a bad surrounding. Either you were born into a bad family, or you went to a bad school, or you were taught by bad teachers, or you grew up with a bad and negative culture. And so it's a way of kind of blame shifting those things that we do that are evil to others, to the society around us. And Christian theology says no to that. You act the way you act because your heart is inclined towards evil from the day of your birth. You were born into sin. That's the Christian teaching. The Christian teaching is that Adam fell as the federal head of humanity, and all of us then were born not only into his error, but into his inclination then, having fallen. Okay? So here's the sad truth of this all, and I hope this rings clearly for some of you. If you ever look out, and you're surprised by the wickedness of this world, and you're surprised by how many believe the lies of the evil one, and how quickly they are caught up in his deceptions, and how faithfully they follow the beast rather than the true and living God, Always remember that so many are deceived so thoroughly because they want to be deceived. They want it. They desire it. They long to be deceived. And you say, well, how can that be true? And I'm telling you that it is true. Because Christian theology and the Bible teaches that we were born with inclination to sin. That's the doctrine of total depravity. And what total depravity means is that every facet of your humanity, your body, your mind, your will, your affections, they are all disinclined to God and inclined instead towards evil and towards selfishness. This, by the way, is why Christianity insists that you must be born again. That's John 3, 5, right? You must be born again. You are not a tabula rasa, and you cannot press your sin on the society or those who surround you as behaviorism does 
you must individually be born again. You must confess and repent of your sins. So number one, the false prophet actually doesn't have to work all that terribly hard because we're already inclined to err and to deception by way of original sin or total depravity. Okay, that's number one. Okay, again, excuse my voice. I'm trying the best I can. Number two, look though at the persuasion of might and power as it is described in this text. Secondly, think of the persuasion of might or power. Look at verse 18. Okay. To eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. Well, that sounds like a pretty powerful army, doesn't it? Look at, the, bat, look at the, uh, the bodies that are strewn here on this eschatological battlefield as John describes it here. We have kings, we have captains, we have mighty men. These are powerful forces. And it's probably unfortunately true also that there are very, very few benevolent monarchs. Usually, uh, the more power man can accumulate for himself, the more wicked he does with that power, Right? Um, the more power accumulates, the more wicked it becomes. And this is very difficult to resist. And the reason it's difficult to resist is because most men are afraid of power. Okay? Um, in other words, we are easily convinced and persuaded, especially when there is force that, or power that backs up that manipulation that is coming at us. And that is because most of us, we prefer security even over against truth. If I gave you the choice between being secure and comfortable or standing for the truth, honestly, a lot of us would be tempted to, to make the choice of security and comfort against truth. We're afraid of power and we fear it. And many of us are persuaded by the mere threat of force. Now, if you've ever studied logic, and I wish logic were studied in schools, uh, there is a fallacy called ad baculum. Does that sound familiar at all to anybody? Nod a little bit if it does. The fallacy of ad baculum is the idea uh, that you can be persuaded by arguments that you ought not to be persuaded by merely because you're afraid of the consequent. And this happens especially in a generation of cowardly men. And cowardly men are very often, very often, moored away from the truth because of threats of force and power. Let me give you an example. I'm going to make it up. Suppose... Uh, that you work for a company and your company is taken up in some new social justice movement, whatever that is. Okay? Not too strained of an imaginary scenario, right? But the company that you work for is taken up in some new social justice movement. And in this hy hypothetical social justice movement, the company wants every employee to post a yellow square by their name. Not a big deal. Just post the yellow square. That's all we're asking. And you say to yourself, well, why should I post the yellow square? I'm not so sure I even believe this. Aha, well, the company has the power, don't they, to educate you by way of uh, special, special lectures, special re-educational uh, seminars and things like this, so that you'll believe in the cause of the yellow square. But suppose you don't. Suppose you're the one guy in the meeting that has the courage to raise his hand and say, wait a minute, I'm not sure I actually believe what this yellow square is standing for. Why should I post that next to my name? 
And then the company says to you this, and this might be a real scenario for some of you. The company says, but this company believes in the yellow square. And if you want to have a future in this company, all of our employees are expected to post the yellow square. And so what do you do in that scenario? Well, you like your job, obviously. You like employment, all things considered. You prefer to be employed. You prefer to have benefits You prefer to not be suddenly unemployed because of a yellow square, whatever that even means. And so all of a sudden, you're posting the yellow square like everybody else does. And why do they do it? Ad baculum, appeal to power, appeal to force. They'll fire you if you don't. And ad baculum fallacies, logical fallacies, are pretty difficult to resist unless you're composed of a venerable conscience, which not many are, unfortunately. Go with me back to Revelation chapter 13. I want to show you exactly what I'm talking about, just in John's words instead of my own. Revelation chapter 13, we're talking here about the second beast, also known as the false prophet, Look at verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that, verse 17, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. So that's a pretty serious threat right there, right? Because who's going to resist that? Verse 17, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Well, buying and selling ends up being pretty important because that's how you feed your family. And so appeals to force can be very, very powerful and only those who have the Holy Spirit filling their hearts and their lives are going to be able to resist that kind of pressure. So that's in large measure how the false prophet is so terribly efficient. Now, the consequences, by the way, of ad baculum arguments can be very serious, uh, being socially ostracized, uh, financially penalized in the form of taxations, fines, or just a denial of access to means, physical uh, pain, torture, and of course, death. All right, so the persuasion of might. Third, the persuasion of numbers. Again, the question that we're trying to answer here is how does the false prophet deceive so many when he's so clearly warned against in the Scriptures? Well, look at verse 18. So not only is it kings and captains in the flesh of mighty men, but look at this. The flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And so apparently there's a very great number of those who are deceived. Because it says all men... All kinds of men. And then it gives some examples. Free men and slaves, small and great. Now, I, I can't even ballpark for you what that number might be like, how many we're talking about here. can't even ballpark it. Um, sometimes it seems in the Scriptures that the elect or the saved are very many. As, for instance, in Revelation 7-9, It says this in a passage that we've read a number of times. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. That's a lot of the saved. Okay? But there are other passages in the Scriptures that would certainly seem to suggest that the saved are very few in comparison with the lost. So listen to Matthew 7.13 where Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gates, for wide is the gates and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. So if you were to ask me, like, who, who has the majority here? Are there more who are saved or the more who are lost? I can't even ballpark it for you. I don't even know. If you gave me a pie chart and asked me to make the first slice, I don't even know where that angle goes. Uh, all I can tell you is that the saved, the elect, are very, very, very many, an uncountable number of multitude. That's awesome. Praise God. And yet we're also told in other places that those who are deceived are very, very many. And I will simply tell you that it is very, very difficult, just as it is to resist an ad baculum argument, an appeal to force, as it is to resist an ad populum fallacy, which is an appeal to numbers. Okay? Ad populum is another fallacy, logically speaking. Again, I wish we taught logic a little bit more than we do. An ad populum argumentation is one that should not be rationally convincing to the mind other than you feel subject to the force that everyone else disagrees with you. Okay? That's why four out of five dentists always recommend the same brand of toothpaste. Because okay? nobody wants to be that one out of five. As it turns out, it's very difficult to resist the numerical preponderance. And so it seems here that even as there are dead bodies everywhere in this, this very macabre, a very kind of uh, dark scene here of the Battle of Armageddon, that many people are going to be persuaded by the fact that many others were persuaded. And that alone is enough for some. You say, well, that wouldn't work on me. Probably it might. Because being in the minority is a very difficult temptation to resist. Let me give you an example. just happened last month. Um, This is crazy. Listen to this. The American Anthropological Association had their big meeting. Did you hear about this? It was in the New York Times. Uh, The American Anthropological Association had their meetings, and there was a panel discussion that was proposed to discuss, and the title of the panel discussion was this, uh, Why Biological Sex Remains a Necessary Analytic Category in Anthropology. I'll say it again. Why biological sex remains a necessary analytic category in anthropology. Let me break that down. Okay, so you're out in the field. You're doing archaeology. You've got your shovels and your trowels and your brushes and you're, you're dusting things off. Here's a body. What is it? Well, you look at that body and you analyze the bone structure. It's obviously been dead for many, many years. And you look at the size of the hips, for instance, which are different in men and women. And you should be able to recognize that biological distinction between a male skeleton and a a female skeleton is a pretty important category distinction in anthropology, okay? So what happened to this panel discussion, why biological sex remains a necessary analytic category in anthropology? Well, it was forbidden to take place, and they cut it from the program. Why? Because now we don't want to think in terms of clear 
bifurcation of categories, even of a human skeleton, because to do that kind of work would be necessary to suggest that it was either male or female. Can't do that anymore, they say. So according to the New York Times article on October 2nd, 2023, that panel was cut from the American Anthropological Association's meeting. Now you may say to yourself, how can it be? How is it? That in a field of testable science, in which presumably we're working on the theory of hypotheses, testing, and confirmation, how can it be that we can't even use the two basic categories of male and female anymore? How How is that possible? I'll tell you. I'll tell you how it's possible. Ad populum fallacy. People are afraid to be in the minority today. That's all it is. People are afraid to stand for the truth when everybody else is turning against Either that or the threat of cancellation, which is back to ad baculum. Okay? So that's some of the reasons why the false prophet is so terribly efficient. And by the way, if you think peer pressure is a teenage problem, it is certainly not. A lot of us never grew out of it. Okay? A lot of us, even men in the room, when we grew our beards, we failed to grow spines. And therefore, we're afraid to stand against the crowd even today. A lot of us are, and it's sad. It's sad. Okay. Fourth, because the false prophet appears to have real demonic power, okay, in addition to everything I've said about the heart and persuasion, notice that the false prophet also has real demonic and satanic power. Look at verse 20. The beast was captured, praise God. Okay, so actually this is a pretty good paragraph for us who believe. Okay? So this paragraph is actually part of the gospel that God is going to crush all demonic lies and rebellion. The beast is going to be captured. The false prophet is also going to be captured. They're going to be thrown alive into the lake of fire. So all of that is good for those of us who believe. Uh, But notice this, before that happens, and we're not yet to the place in redemption history in our own lives right now where that has happened yet, before that happens, what he does is he manipulates through signs. Look at verse 20 again. The beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Question for you. Okay. Are those signs real? Yes or no? The false prophet does signs. Are they real? Well, they certainly look real in this text. Okay. And it certainly looks real in other texts in the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation 13, 13 with me and tell me if these signs are real. Again, this is the the second beast. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. That sounds real. The Baal prophets couldn't do it in 1 Kings 18. It certainly seems like the false prophet can Or uh, consider, I'm going to have you go in a different place in a minute, so just stay right here. But consider 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, and 10. Listen again. Tell me if this is real or not. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now, part of me wants to say that, no, the signs are not real because it just said that they are false signs. 
okay? But if that's true, then why did it just say, just prior to that, with all power and false signs and wonders? Well, it sounds to me like actually the signs are false, not because they don't have power, but because they're so deceptive in turning hearts away from the true and living God. That's why they're false signs. Now go with me to one more place here, and then we're going to wrap up shortly. I want you to see this, though. Go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. This is an important text. Very important. Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Okay, so that's real. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Do you understand what that text is saying? It's saying that occasionally there is a prophet or a dreamer who comes along and he does appear to have very legitimate signs or powers. Because it says right there, if his sign or his wonder comes to pass and yet he teaches you astray, you still do not follow him. You only follow the true and living God. Okay? Believers, There is real satanic power in this world. I want you to understand that and know it. We do not live in a secular or atheistic world. We do not live in a strictly materialist world. That's what the unbelievers think. Christians understand that we live in a world that was created by the true and living God, okay? That we bear the image of God, all human beings do, in our creation, That this world is inhabited by real angels and demons. And that we do not live in an anti-supernaturalistic age. There is supernatural power. There is supernatural demonic power. Be aware of it. And do not be deceived by it. Okay? In conclusion, I just want to mention two things to make your life deception-proof. First, so here are my applications. Number one. You want your life to be deception-proof because you are so thoroughly founded on the Word of God that nothing could pry you away from it. Do you find your life built on that rock? I hope so. That's the rock of Christ Jesus. Build your life on the foundational assurance of the Scriptures, the Word of the infallible, true, and living God. Do that and you will not be deceived. Make all of your life founded upon the Word of God. You worship in the church Hopefully in a Bible-teaching church in which God's Word is taught with respect and with authority. You want to worship in a Bible-believing church. 
Uh, Secondly, you want to have family worship in your life. You want to have devotions around the table. You want to be always talking about the Word of God. Parents, you want to be catechizing your children in the truth of the Word of God. Third, you want to have personal devotion, personal study times in the Scriptures. Your goal, Christian person, is that you would be like what Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan when he said that if you prick him, his blood bleeds bibbling. You remember that famous quote? You want to be like that. You want to be oozing the Bible out of your pores. You want to be not able to be deceived because your mind is so thoroughly saturated. All of the frameworks of your worldview, all of the understandings, all of the undergirdings of the way you think and what you believe, it's all built upon the superstructure construct of the Word of God. If your life is built like that, you're not going to be deceived. Okay. Second, you have to have antenna up at all times for the lies and the deception and the propaganda that's always surrounding you. In fact, I would prefer it, Gospel Fellowship, if you would just assume that you're being lied to all the time by the world. Just assume it. Okay? You're listening to the media, just assume that they're lying to you. You're listening to a politician, assume that he's starting from the position that he wants to deceive you. Just assume it. Hollywood's got a new movie for you. A new song is coming out. There's a new superstar out there. He's handsome and beautiful and attractive. Just assume that everybody is lying to you all the time. If you do that, you can cultivate sort of a habit of skepticism so that any kind of new idea that comes to you, you're going to kind of like refute it automatically just by way of disposition. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you, that you can't believe anything. Okay, but I am saying that you should start with the disposition that you're probably being deceived or somebody's trying to get one over on you. Just start there. Rene Descartes, uh, the, the famous philosopher, his, his motto, you remember this? De omnibus dubitandum. Doubt everything. And he builds his philosophy on that construct of anything that comes at me, I'm going to doubt it. And then he ends up saying, I think, therefore, I am. This is beginning foundational knowledge. Assume that the world is lying to you. Have your antenna up constantly for deception. Okay, so those two things. Founded on the word all the time. That's what you believe. That's what your whole ideology is built on, your whole worldview. Everything you think and believe, founded on the scriptures. Then after that, just start with a position of skepticism that the world is probably trying to manipulate you. It it really is. And you will make yourself in that way deception-proof, even from the false prophet with real demonic power. With that,